I was woke up six o'clock in the morning, pounding on the doors. And uh, I answered the door and, and the guy says, Jim wants to see you. So I go and talk to Jim and he says, you know, one of the guys on guard duty noticed snipers all around perimeter. He said, I want you to go out there and talk to them. Now I got my hands in the air and I'm shaking like a cock I don't know what these guys are gonna do. If one false move, I'm dead kind of thing. Five decades ago, Kerry Noble was one of the leaders of a far-right extremist group in Arkansas. And that group, it was actually a precursor to the domestic terror groups we're seeing in the U.S. today. And one day, in 1985, the FBI showed up at the group's compound. Kerry sent to talk to them. So I get fairly close, you know, a few yards, and he tells me to stop. And I said, he said, what do you want? I said, what do I want? What do y'all want? You know, you're intruding on Ireland. I want you to leave. He gets on, he's on the headset, I can see him talking. He said, are you willing to go down and talk to our commander? Yeah. So I walk down and uh, this short guy comes out and introduces himself to me. He said, uh, we need to end this peacefully. I said, Yes, sir, that's what I want to do, too. He said, I'm going to lay out this scenario for you. I've got a Huey helicopter right over the hill with a machine gun. I've got another machine gun on, on the hill that a sniper will use and start blowing big old holes in your building. And the machine gun is going to start cutting everybody that it sees. He said, I want you to understand the gravity of the situation, and I want you to understand we are the hostage rescue team out of Quantico, Virginia. They don't send me to do penny any stuff. They only send me in the most dangerous situations. He said, we're not here to start the war. We are not going to fire the first shot. So I want you to be at, at ease with that. I said, okay. He said, but if anybody from the compound fires a shot, if you start this, I want you to understand we will end it very, very quickly and all of you will be dead. From Vice News and Gimlet, I'm Ben Maku, and this is American Terror. Episode 2, The Farm. We're in some, like, Definitely, it's got that uh, Friday Night Lights with the like whispering willow trees and you know the no 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 sidewalks. Everything's just a little bit gold or green or brown. We're just outside Fort Worth, Texas, driving to Carrie Noble's house. Nice. What are you most curious about? I kind of want to know if he's. I want to know how much of a former he really is. Because I just like don't know how you can be that extreme and just like suddenly like the light goes off or you're like, actually this is bullshit. I just, I'm always a little skeptical. I know it happens and I know it's true, but I am interested to see. It's been hard to decide how to begin this series because racist terrorism has existed since the founding of this country. Slavery was itself genocide and terror. The many wars and conflicts with indigenous peoples, same. This country was founded on white supremacy. 
And the government, as well as individual groups, have used violence to uphold that system for centuries. But there's a moment I want to zoom in on, because the neo-Nazi groups I'm reporting on, like the base, they have a specific origin story. And it starts back in the 60s and 70s, when far-right extremist groups were undergoing a transformation. The major groups at the time, like the KKK, some members started to trade their white robes for camo fatigues and military drills. The American Nazi Party, a political party that, at one point, enjoyed public notoriety, had splintered. Many of these groups were abandoning electoral politics and choosing instead to live apart from society. Many moved out to isolated rural compounds, where they dreamed of the downfall of society and the creation of their own white world, which is, of course, something groups like the base still talk about all the time. And Kerry Noble was in the midst of it all. His group was called the Covenant Sword and the Arm of the Lord, or the CSA for short. And their rise and eventual fall is tied directly to where we are today. Because the story of this little-known group shows how this movement gained power and weapons and money, and how the U.S. government completely failed to bring down far-right extremism when they had the chance. Hi, Carrie. Hey, actually, I was just about to call the search department. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie's in his 70s. He's tall and sort of walks with a shuffle. He's got a scruffy white goatee and thick glasses. We meet on a warm, cloudy day in April. Wait till August. It's just hot, but it's just rid of the bugs and the northerners, you know. Kerry tells me he likes living in the country, where it's quiet. Back in the 70s, Kerry was a young 20-something living in Dallas and working at a local newspaper. He was married and deeply religious, Southern Baptist. And he and his wife were starting a family. They thought it sounded nice to live in a community somewhere, to raise kids with other couples, share their work, back to the land type vibes. So they moved in with some friends, and then those friends introduced them to a religious community that had land in the Ozark Mountains, and they go visit. We had an old station wagon in those days. The driveway runs through a thick cedar forest. It was like nine miles, just a bumpy road, you know, and uh, I never forget. On this road, at one point, there was like eight or nine deer in the road. The commune itself is spread across hundreds of acres. It's the kind of place where you could really disappear. And it was just a circle of white cabins and then one main house. In the middle of the compound, there's a small green space for camping and cookouts and a lake. It's just a beautiful little place. And then, Carrie says, the group's founder, a man named Jim Ellison pulls up in a logging truck. He'd just come from cutting timber. He jumped off the back of that truck and sort of, I don't know what the word is, sashayed or or swandered over to me and very jovially introduced himself to me and just laughed and just very, very personable. Hi, I'm Jim Ellison and this is the CSA. That's the founder, Jim Ellison, in a documentary from the 80s. God sent us here six, seven years ago to establish a place of refuge for his people during the times of trouble that are coming. Members of this community had nicknamed the compound The Farm. (laughs) 
Kiri loved it. The sense of community, belonging, building something together. So he quickly moves his family, his wife and baby daughter, out to the farm. And then we started building houses on it and developing the land, putting fences up, all that kind of stuff. So in those days, it was just Christians wanted, wanting to live together, fellowship together, work together. Was any talk revolutions or nothing. Just community. The community believes in a type of apocalyptic Christianity, that the end of the world is near. And they celebrate it, pray for it, because they think that from the ashes of this world, Jesus would create a new Christian kingdom. Everyone in the group is white. And while the core beliefs aren't yet explicitly racist, it's definitely there in the background, the static of white supremacy. So they're prepping and constantly on the lookout for signs of the coming end times. When you're in an, an apocalyptic mindset, everything becomes a sign from God, good or bad. And to carry the CSA and the broader far-right movement, the 70s are exploding with signs. In Vietnam, we finally have reached the end of the tunnel, and there is no light there. Major historical turning points, like the end of the Vietnam War. It hadn't been very long since abortion became legal. And the establishment of Roe v. Wade. The court said in a 7-2 decision that in the first three months of pregnancy, only the woman and her physician may decide whether she may have an abortion. That was a hot spot for everybody in those days. It hadn't been very long since prayer got kicked out of schools. So that was a hot spot. So, you, you know, the signs were there, you know, for the end of the world. Meanwhile, Kerry quickly climbs the ranks of the CSA. He basically becomes the second in command, the group's religious leader. So he leads Bible studies and becomes a mouthpiece for the founder, Jim Ellison, disseminating Ellison's message to the rest of the group. And then Kerry goes back home to visit his family. And a friend of his gives him some tapes of sermons by this guy. The guy's name was John Todd. The occult world is a very political and financial world. John Todd was a conspiracy theorist who preached about the end of days and how a new world order was coming. I'm going to be talking about an organization called the Illuminati today. Todd's message lit a fire under an already paranoid and conspiratorial community at the farm. That when the apocalypse happened, people from cities would come for the compound. He said, how are you going to protect yourself when the bad people come out? You need guns. And so Todd advocates for good, God-fearing Christians, like the members of the CSA, to arm themselves. And but just, yeah, <laughs> makes sense, you know. Israel in the Old Testament had spears and swords and stuff. So sure, you got to protect yourself. So we spent, uh, I think it was $58,000 over the next 18 months on weapons, ammunition, military gear. While some seek a passive retreat from the coming cataclysm, others prepare to meet disaster head on. And started practicing. So we bought, every man had a shotgun, a rifle, and a pistol. And we practiced, and we practiced, and we practiced, and we became very good at it. We built a obstacle course, built a four-block mock town called Silhouette City. These are not U.S. infantrymen. They are soldiers of God, rehearsing for their self-ordained role in maintaining order in the chaotic world to come. 
you were preparing for a potential war of some kind. Were you stockpiling? Yeah, we were stockpiling weapons. Where were you getting this stuff? Were you stealing it from military? We stole a lot of stuff uh, from uh, National Guard depots, buildings, that kind of stuff. A lot of dynamite, C-4, an anti-aircraft uh, missile. I know. That sounds extreme. And it is. But militia and the far right taking munitions from army bases happened more often than you would imagine. And it still happens today. And then we were given a 55 barrel of uh, some sort of cyanide uh, that we could use, put into water supply or whatever we want to do with it. And, and most of the, guy, the military guys put the, a hollow point bullet. They would put a little bit of, of uh, uh, cyanide in that, seal it with wax, so that if you got shot with a hollow point, it'd kill you pretty quick. At this point, the CSA is getting organized. They have money from selling thousands of dollars worth of lumber. They're buying up weapons and building a military training course on their property. And they balloon to over 100 members. And then another big change happens. The CSA's founder, Jim Ellison, goes to visit a radical Christian group and comes back with tapes of more sermons. This time from a guy named Dan Gaiman. Say, man, we got to listen to this had all the elders come together, and we listened to this guy. And, they... and what Kerry hears that day from Gaiman was an ideology called Christian identity. It's even more extreme than the end-of-days prepping they were doing. So Christian identity is a racist Christian cult. Members believe that the Bible actually says that white Christians, not Jewish people, are the true descendants of Israelites. And they believe that people of color don't have souls. So here comes Gaiman pinpointing it even more narrow to saying it's this Jewish cabal is behind this whole thing. Christian identity is farther right than even what most people consider far right wing. Kerry says that it shocked him, but that it built upon what they already believed. You have to understand, we're apocalyptic. So we start to see who's betraying the United States. And this was a group of all-white, fundamentalist Christians living on a compound in the middle of nowhere. They were primed for deeper radicalization. So I buy every book that there is that I could find. Kerry says that it took the group some time, but not that much, to digest. And it took us six months to go through that. Since I'm the Bible teacher of the group, everything has to come through me because I'm the one who's got to teach it to everybody else. So if I don't understand it, I don't teach it. If I understand it, then I've got to teach it. And Carrie starts to dive deep into Christian identity. I grew up in Abilene, Texas. I'm a teenager during the late 60s when we were having race wars and colleges are in an uproar and that kind of stuff. Carrie says race war, but I think he means the civil rights movement. It's definitely odd language. He says Christian identity spoke to him because it directly discussed aspects of society and culture that mainstream Christianity considered taboo, specifically race. And I could remember in Sunday school class asking my Sunday school teacher, what does the Bible say about race? And my teacher said, we do not talk about that. That's a taboo subject, which made no sense to me because the Bible answers everything. What does it say about race? And if we're told we can't talk about that, that is a contradiction to me. 
Now here comes people who are not only willing to talk about race, but want to talk about race and do it from a Bible point of view. That sucks me in. And so Kerry begins preaching this hateful new ideology and prophesizing that the end times will play out as a race war. And this is how, in just a few years, the group morphed from a conservative Christian commune to a highly armed, fringe-right religious hate group, one with access to weapons, ammunition, and hundreds of acres of land for training. They start to make connections with other far-right extremist groups, and Ellison invites them all to the farm. Because in the movement, if you think of the three circles, you got, you know, your neo-Nazi kind of people. You got your Klan and racist kind of people. The CSA compound becomes a meeting point. The Klan, the Aryan nations, neo-Nazis, they all start sharing plans and ideology. We all agree the government's problem. We all agreed that the Jews were the problem behind the government. In those days across the country, the older generation just talked, 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 talked. You know, this is what we're going to do. The younger generation was tired of just talking. So in 1983, a few members quit the CSA. They leave the farm, and some of them form a new group with former members of the Aryan Nations. Out of Butler's church followers came a splinter group, The Order. Called The Order. It's more radical and more violent. Some two dozen members are connected with murder, armored car robberies, and counterfeiting. They start robbing banks, talk about blowing up federal buildings, and threaten to assassinate so-called race traitors, people of color and Jews. Authorities believe the order netted roughly $4 million, money to buy an arsenal, an arsenal for the violent overthrow of the United States government. And they send a lot of money to various far-right extremist groups around the country, to chapters of the Klan, and the Aryan Nations, and, allegedly, to the CSA, around $300,000. And then... Someone passing in a vehicle using a semi-automatic weapon or an automatic weapon, I'm not sure which, fired upon Allen Berg when he was exiting his vehicle in front of his home. Members of the order murder a Jewish radio host named Allen Berg. A Jewish radio talk show host in Denver who had been critical of white supremacists. And Allenberg has, in fact, passed on. He is no longer with us. Berg was really famous across the country. He was what you called at the time a radio shock jock. He debated racists and members of white supremacist groups live, on the air. And his murder showed that these groups could kill someone in the public eye, someone who directly challenged them. Kerry remembers hearing the news about Berg's murder. When we first heard about it, we said, well, okay, there's another Jew that's dead. He was just a Jew. He was a loudmouth Jew, and he, but he was, from our point of view, he was a Jew. It didn't hit us all that much. This whole time I'm listening to Kerry trying to gauge if or how he had really changed his beliefs. And I'll be honest, I really winced hearing him say loudmouth Jew. I do a lot of interviews with extremists and people who used to be part of extremist groups. And when they say they're reformed, I'm always hesitant to think it's true. A lot of formers I've talked to downplay their past racist, violent intentions, make believe like they didn't mean to do it, or they'll minimize their own role or be apologetic during interviews. But I started to get a different sense from Kerry. He seemed to be at a point where he was just telling the story as he remembers it, including how he himself was involved. 
And hearing how everything went down in this group sheds light on what's happening today. Okay, so it's the 80s and the order's wave of violence. It all started in 1983 at a gathering called the Aryan Nations Congress, where the far right changed course. This meeting brought together leaders from across the movement. You have the heads of the Klan, the Aryan Nations, and other neo-Nazi groups all meeting at the Aryan Nations compound in Northern Idaho. The CSA is, of course, there too. This is when uh, some of the younger members got up and said, we need action, what are we gonna do? And what they decide to do, it's big. The leaders of the various groups decide to go public with their racist ideology and goals. They declare war against the United States government. When Jim Ellison returns from the Aryan Congress, Kerry says Jim warns him. Jim said, we're all traitors to the United States government. We'll all be hunted by the government. And they are. That's after the break. So the order is committing violent crimes all over the country. Far-right extremist groups, including the CSA, have openly declared war on the U.S. government. And Kerry and Jim Ellison decide... If we were going to do anything, it had to be bigger than anybody else did. They feel like the CSA needs to gain back its standing in the eyes of the younger, more violent parts of the movement. We did consider ourselves trailblazers in the sense that if God called us to do something, nobody could do it better than us. That was our frame of mind. So Kerry, along with Ellison and another CSA member, Richard Snell, decide that they will be the ones to take action. Snell came uh, to us, to Jim specifically, and said, look, I'm having problems with this IRS out of Oklahoma City. The IRS had accused Snell of tax evasion and raided his home. So Snell suggests they plan an attack on the Alfred P. Murrah building in Oklahoma City one of the biggest federal buildings in the Midwest. He wanted to bomb the Murrah Building. The Murrah Building. It's a federal building in Oklahoma City, and in 10 years, every American will know this name. They'll hear it all over the news. But Kerry's talking about plans his group had in 1983, more than a decade before. This would be a warning shot that would reverberate all across the country if we blew this thing up. But as they're prepping, things start to go wrong, and they change their target. So then we said, okay, let's, we'll, we'll do an assassination. They decide instead to kill agents of the federal government. So tax officials, judges. So we went to scope out their houses, got their addresses, that kind of thing, and laid out plans for an assassination on all three. Kerry, Ellison, and Snell plan an attack for the morning after Christmas. But Kerry says a snowstorm derails their plans at the last minute. Kerry is still determined to prove to Ellison and the rest of the group that he's dedicated to the cause. And in those days, we had what was called earning your place in the kingdom. That I had to earn my right in Jim's eyes to hold a position of authority. And so Kerry approaches Jim. And I said, do you really want this whole right, you know, racial war in the day's warfare. He said, yeah, you know I do. And plans yet another attack. Had the munitions asked, get me a, uh, 
a silenced weapon and a briefcase full of C4. And I'll go make this happen. He's heard on the news about a park in Kansas City that's a hookup spot for gay men. Kerr decides he'll drive there with his pistol and silencer. I'll go around this park and I'll kill whoever I see in this park. So Kerr shows up after dark. Got to this gay park around 10 or 11 and drove around it half a dozen times or more. I'm at the driver's seat. I got the window down. I got the silenced pistol. I'm, I'm ready. Saw nobody. But the park is empty. If you had encountered someone, would you have killed them? I, I'm convinced of that. I would, I'd have shot them. I was geared up. I, I had to make this up to Jim somehow in my mind. Again, this is Carrie's version. We haven't been able to corroborate this story. Kerry says he still felt like he needed to prove to Allison and the other members of the CSA that he's serious about the violence the group preaches, that he wants to start a race war, accelerate the downfall of the U.S. government. So the next morning, he says he goes to blow up a church that openly welcomes gay people. So we take the briefcase, we go in. Of course, they think we're just two homosexuals come to church. Don't think nothing about it. Welcome us. We didn't know what to expect. You know, in our minds, the propaganda is sexual orgies going on when we get there, which obviously is not the case. So we sit down uh, on the men's side, of course, and I had told my friend, I said, when we go in there, I can't just set the timer and we walk out. That would look suspicious. We're going to stay for a while, you know, half an hour. Um, and they do the announcements, just like a typical church thing. And then... Uh, I start looking around. Of course, in a military situation, one of the things that you do not do is put a face on the enemy, which is hard to do if you're sitting in the midst of the enemy. You know, So I'm looking around, and I'm realizing there's nobody's got an eye in the middle of their forehead, horns, tail sticking out, nothing like that. Everybody just looks normal. And uh, then I start looking around and seeing, to, thinking to myself, well, you know, these, these are homosexuals, but they've never hurt me. They've never hurt my family. They never have hurt friends of mine. I don't know these people from Adam. And if I kill these people, it's not because of anything they've done to me. It's not like self-defense you know, or anything like that. And then the next step was, if I do this, is it really going to start what we think is the racial or war in America. And I had to be honest with myself. Said, and I said, no, it's probably not. It's going to be a horrendous act. Uh, it's going to be media news for a while, but it's not going to cause the uprising in, in the country. It's not going to overthrow the government, that kind of thing. <clears throat> and then the, they started doing their music, playing music. And, you know, it's typical church music, but then I started seeing homosexuals raise their hands and worship and lift, raise their heads and stuff that we did. And for the first time, I didn't see them as homosexuals anymore. I saw them as Christians because they're worshiping God. And the thought came to me of an identification with them that these people are simply trying to find their place in God and their, their place in the world for who they are. And now I see them as Christians. You know, that they just want to praise God the best of their ability, be accepted just like everybody else is accepted. That's all they want. And that's all I wanted was to fit in. So I told my friend, get up, we're leaving. 
took the briefcase and we walked out. Now we go back to the farm. Again, this is Carrie's version of how this all went down. The only other person who could corroborate this story has died. Get back to the farm and Jim and all the guys are watching the news still, trying to wait for something. And we walk in and Jim looks at me and says, what, what happened? And I told him everything. And he just looked at me, after I finished, he looked at me in front of all the guys and said, you're a coward. This was your chance to earn your place and you're just a coward, you're nothing. At this point, Carrie's belief in the cause is waning, and the feds are looking closer at the CSA. Carrie says one of the members of the order had left a pistol at the scene of a robbery, and that pistol gets traced back to the CSA. Then, the federal agents move. They start arresting members of the order and surround the spot where the group's leader, Robert Matthews, is hiding. December 1984, another firefight, this one on Whidbey Island, Washington, and a massive shootout ensues. Ends the life of Robert Matthews, mastermind of the terrorist group The Order and architect of its string of robbery, arson, and murder. Matthews is killed. Members of The Order go into hiding. Some come to the farm and hide out with the CSA. So now you've got fugitives from one far-right extremist group hiding out with another. Kerry's still there, even though he's hesitated when it comes to committing violence, he still hasn't left the CSA. By April 1985, a police sergeant in Arkansas calls Carrie down to the station to talk about Allison. He said, I've got a arrest warrant. Conspiracy to possess unlawful weapons. He said, it's just a conspiracy thing. It's five-year maximum sentence. He'll probably do, if he volunteers to surrender, go good in his behalf, and he'll probably do less time than that. And uh, I said, well, i got to go talk to Jim first. Kerry tries to talk Ellison into surrendering, but Ellison refuses. And by the next day, the farm is completely surrounded by federal agents, almost 100 of them. World News Saturday. Here's Kathleen Sullivan. Good evening. Along the border of Missouri and Arkansas tonight, heavily armed FBI agents and local police are playing a tense waiting game outside the headquarters of a neo-Nazi group. Ellison orders Kerry to go negotiate. So Kerry walks down to the main gate to speak with the FBI's lead agent. He said, uh, we need to end this peacefully. I said, yes, sir, that's what I want to do, too. He said, I'm going to lay out this scenario for you. I said, okay. He said, we're not here to start the war. We are not going to fire the first shot. He said, but if anybody from the compound fires a shot, here's what's going to happen. I've got a Huey helicopter right over the hill with a 50 caliber machine gun. I've got another 50 caliber machine gun on, on the hill that a sniper will use and start blowing big old holes in your building. If you start this, I want you to understand we will end it very, very quickly and all of you will be dead. We corroborated this whole story with the FBI agent, Danny Colson. He doesn't remember saying this specifically, but he said that he did threaten Carrie that if the group attacked first, the FBI would retaliate. Carrie says members of the order who are hiding at the farm are encouraging Ellison to fire the first shot. Meanwhile, Carrie is the go-between with Ellison, the FBI, and the press. You know, just all the men are on, on alert if anything bad happens, you know, which we want to try to avoid if possible. This is Carrie talking with a national reporter as this standoff is unfolding. 
but uh, uh, our, our stand has been made known in the past that we won't allow uh, violence against our people. After four days, Ellison finally surrenders. So the man coming to line formation, Jim's in front, I'm in the back center, and the guys are singing one of our war songs all the way down, and I'm just crying like a baby. You know, just glad it was over with and we're not dead. Seven CSA members are arrested. Kerry pleads guilty to a handful of weapons charges. He's sentenced to five years in prison. Ellison's sentenced to more than 20 years. Kerry serves a little over two years, but as his release date nears, he gets a visit from the FBI. And they took me into a private room and uh, said, Jim's turning state's evidence against the leaders of the right-wing movement. We're going to have a sedition trial. Sedition, plotting to overthrow the federal government. And I said, good luck. And they said, well, we need for you to corroborate Jim's testimony. Not interested. I'm Most of my jail time's over with. I'll get to go home. I've put all this stuff behind me. I've tried to forget everything that's happened. And one of them looks at me and says, you don't understand. If you don't cooperate, you're going to be named as a defendant, and you could face life in prison. So Kerry decides to cooperate and to act as a witness for the government. For years, the FBI had been building a case against a list of people who belong to several far-right extremist groups. The idea is to prove that these groups are a coordinated movement with an ideology and a plan, and that that plan is to overthrow the U.S. government. If the government's case succeeds, it'll be historic, set a precedent for going after future extremists and domestic terror groups. The feds charge 14 leaders with inciting rebellion. Defendants are among the who's who of hate groups. Including the heads of the Klan, the Aryan Nations, and members of the Order. On the left, Reverend Richard Butler of Idaho's neo-Nazi Aryan Nations Church. On the right, Louis Beam, a former Texas Klan Grand Dragon. Also on trial are David Lane and Bruce Carroll Pierce, both convicted in the 1984 slaying of Jewish Denver talk show host Alan Berg. The trial begins in February 1988 in Fort Smith, Arkansas. It's meant to be a turning point for how the U.S. government prosecutes right-wing extremists. And that's what it ends up being, just not the way the FBI envisioned. In Fort Smith, Arkansas today, there's the case of the landmark trial. At issue are charges of sedition, hate, and violence, and the question of free speech. Kerry says he knew from the start that this trial was going to be a mess. I told the government, the prosecuting attorney, right off the bat, I said, I want you to know having Jim Ellison as your primary witness is a huge mistake. Huge mistake. Because first off, Kerry knows that Ellison is completely unreliable, that he has an inflated sense of self. Ellison literally refers to himself as King of the Ozarks. Second of all, having this in uh, Arkansas, instead of the Northwest, you know, Seattle, where they originally wanted it to be, is a big mistake. And he said, why? I said, because Arkansas is an anti-government state to begin with, you know, civil war and all that kind of stuff. You're asking people to prosecute somebody else for anti-government feelings that these people have. How are you going to have somebody in the jury who's not anti-government? In Arkansas, it's almost impossible. Veiled in unprecedented small-town security, the trial is the government's latest offensive in its war on racial hate groups. White power! White power! White power! 
Adding to trial security jitters have been a series of recent Klan marches and rallies sympathetic to the defendants. This case is a big deal. At the time, people referred to it as a landmark trial. The far right claims that their views and speech are protected under the First Amendment. And for the government, this prosecution is kind of a risky move. The Justice Department has charged the 14 with sedition, with scheming to overthrow the federal government using robberies, assassinations, bombings, even plotting to poison the city water of Washington, D.C. and New York. Sedition is a crime of conspiracy, which means the crime is committed by a network of people or groups. So the federal government has to prove that these groups intended to overthrow the state. If they had any proof, they would have charged me on specific acts a long time ago. And that's harder to prove than charging individuals for smaller crimes, like murder, or robbery, or stolen weapons. This sedition trial is an opportunity to put many of the most dangerous leaders in the far-right extremist movement behind bars, many of them for life. But from the start, there are issues with the prosecution's case. For one, it relies almost exclusively on the testimonies of Jim Ellison and Kerry himself. The defense attacks Ellison's credibility. They say he was mentally unfit and that he would testify to anything to get a reduced sentence. And then there's Kerry. They asked me to identify one of the defendants. Because Kerry knew the defendants and was asked to point out one of them, a member of the order, Artie McBrady. And it had been probably six years since I'd seen Artie. And uh, I looked and I couldn't spot him. So I pointed to one of the defendants and I said, I think that's him. And the jury and the whole court started laughing because it wasn't him. After a seven-week trial, 13 white supremacists charged with plotting to overthrow the government and set up a new nation of their own have been found not guilty. All the defendants are acquitted. The government's case was based largely on the testimony of James Ellison, former leader of an ultra-right paramilitary group, now serving 20 years for racketeering. He claimed that he attended a 1983 meeting where the plot to overthrow the government was hatched. When asked by the press why they voted to acquit, one juror says, we just didn't believe the government's witnesses. But the jury didn't buy it. Civil rights groups say they are concerned that the verdict will now lead to a resurgence by white supremacist groups. Which is basically what happened. After the trial, some of the defendants... The defendants left the courtroom triumphant and defiant. They marched the Confederate memorial located just across the street from the courthouse. The press photographs a member of the movement, a Klan leader named Louis Beam, holding his wife, who's fainted, in his arms. One, I want to praise Yahweh's holy and precious name. Two, I want to say to hell with the federal government. The trial is actually good publicity for the movement and a major embarrassment for the FBI and the federal government. We thought we had met the elements um, and we thought we'd proved it beyond a reasonable doubt, but apparently we hadn't. I want to take a moment here to state very clearly how consequential this trial was. Because back then, and even still today, it's very rare for the government to try anyone for sedition. It's happened a handful of times in the course of American history. In fact, only recently have sedition charges made a resurgence in direct response to Jan 6. The government has charged members of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers with seditious conspiracy for their role in the attack on the Capitol. 
Some have already pleaded guilty. The failure of the Fort Smith trial in 1988 ultimately scares the Department of Justice from bringing sedition charges against anyone for years to come. Moving forward, that changed how the FBI went after far-right extremists and set the stage for what's happening today. Because from that point onward, there will be no more trying to target the movement as a whole. The easier, less legally risky approach will be to just target individual actors with lesser crimes. And so another result of this trial is that all these groups just continued doing what they were doing, spreading their propaganda, planning violence, and openly collaborating across the country. But Kerry, he actually goes in the opposite direction. After his release from prison, he returns home to his wife and family. But leaving wasn't easy. Kerry had built his entire life around the CSA. He'd raised a family there, built a community, and he says leaving the farm had profoundly harmed his children. How's your family been after all this? Now or right after? Now, I think more. Now yeah. Fine. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, what? Did, like, forgive me for assuming this, but I imagine there probably was some damage done by this. There was. To my family? Yeah. Yes. My oldest daughter had nightmares for years. She was 10 when we had to leave the farm. Uh, it was all she knew. And I had to help her to just let the farm die. I can tell you for a fact, none of us have adjusted back to society. I haven't. I still hate it with a passion. You know, society to me sucks. He writes two books about his experiences, says he fundamentally changes his whole life. Do you have any memorabilia from back in your time? I used to. I still got a few pictures. About four, maybe five years ago, when I quit, speaking out all that much, I got tired of it. I threw everything away that I had, well, 98, 99% of it. I kept a few pictures. He says he just couldn't carry that weight anymore. Instead, he shows me family photos. That's a great picture. So, Where was it taken? Every three or four Thanksgivings, we'll gather out there and have a picture taken. During the interview, we're sitting at Carrie's dining room table. So I got black grandchildren, I got Native American grandchildren, I got Hispanic grandchildren. He pulls out photos and albums of his life after the CSA. His five kids and dozens of grandkids. But yeah, I'm very proud of them. Youngest daughter come out being lesbian, I've got my own rainbow coalition. It's cool to see you in the middle of all them right there. Yeah, that's my screenshot on my computer too. I frankly did not expect this or to believe that he had actually changed. And I have to say, listening to Kerry talk about this for hours, it was clear that at one point he really truly believed in this cause. This man was a racist full stop, and at least some part of him was prepared to engage in truly horrendous acts of violence. But it's also refreshing to hear him admit that. When I talk to Kerry, I hear a man who knows the damage that he's done, and he owns it. Driving out of town, I talk with one of my producers, Sam, about it. There wasn't any, like, damage control. It was just like, no, I did that. Like, that's not an easy thing to admit to, I'd imagine. And I think a big part of why he's open to talking is that Kerry knows the stakes. In fact, there was something Kerry said that really stuck with me. 
How about when something like Oklahoma City happens and you see the Murrah building? How do you react? You just does that does that freak you out? I saw it on the news. So I don't understand how anybody in this world could conceive to do something like that to innocent people. I can't believe this is happening. But Carrie knew immediately. The first time I saw it, I, I said to my, my wife and I were watching. I said, they've done it. The right wing has finally crossed the line and they did it. They did it. I knew right off the bat it was the right wing. There's no way it could have been foreign terrorism. Why would foreign terrorists bomb Oklahoma City? I mean, it, there's no symbology to foreign terrorism in terms of the Murrah building. None whatsoever. They, they like the World Tower buildings and that kind of stuff, you know, something that has symbology about the United States. That's not Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City was domestic terrorism symbology. He recognized the target and marks of the movement, and he knew their origins, a book he'd read called The Turner Diaries, a far-right text that sets the stage for the future of neo-Nazi terrorism, and that people in groups like the base read today. That's next time on American Terror. American Terror is a Spotify original podcast from Vice Audio and Gimlet Media. It's reported by me, Ben Maku, as well as Mac Lamara, Ashley Cleek, Sam Egan, Sophie Kazis, and Zachary Kamel. It's produced by Sam Egan and Sophie Kazis, and executive produced by Ashley Cleek, and by Colin Campbell and Nicole Beamsterboer from Gimlet. Sound design and original music composition by Pran Bandy. Editing by Kate Osborne from Vice Audio and Brendan Klinkenberg from Gimlet. Janet Lee is the senior production manager at Vice Audio. Fact-checking by Maximo Anderson and Nicole Pasulka. Joshua Fisher-Birch was our expert consultant. Special thanks to Katie Sheward, Miguel Fernandez-Flores, Anna Sebeskin, Mac Lamoureux, Tim Marchman, Josh Visser, Kisa White, and The Infiltrator for risking his life to bring this story to the public. I'm Ben Maku. <laughs> <laughs>